What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 34 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com. Today, you'll be hearing from Baron of Nasha Extracts, located in Mendocino, California. We discuss how his cultural influences shaped his outlook on hash. We talk a good amount about processing dry cannabis material, the California recreational market, temple balls, and a lot more. So, definitely stay tuned for that. Shout out to our community on Patreon and every person that makes it up for allowing me to continue doing this work. We're so appreciative. We try to bring value back to the community as well via additional interviews only found on Patreon, as well as features like the community chat. So, if you ever want to support the podcast or grab a few stickers, Visit us at patreon.com backslash the hashish in. That's the hashish inn. Or use the link in our Instagram bio at the hashish in and link from there. Shout out to another big reason that we're still here our awesome sponsors, including our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again you can visit at rosinevolution.com. Or on their Instagram at rosinevolution100. They just released a limited edition version of their 32 gallon wash bags in a 250 micron, inspired by the extra big heads grown by Jay Plant Speaker and washed by Solventless Mine. So if you're washing extra big heads, go grab them before they're gone, as well as everything else that you need to make rosin at rosinevolution.com and use our savings code, the letters T H I, the number 710. That's T H I 710, saves you 5% on your entire order with Rosin Evolution. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company. You can visit them at powersplates.com or on Instagram at powersplates. The support has been overwhelming on behalf of the guys at Powers Plates. Thank you all for all your support. They really do put out the highest grade press on the market. They focus on quality over quantity. Like I said, small batch. And if you've been waiting for them to become available again because they've been sold out and a bit backed up due to the worldwide delay on aluminum, I'm excited to say that the drop is coming really soon. So if you're in the market for a rosin press, grab your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press at powersplates.com. And use our exclusive savings code, the letters T H I, to save $75 on all their systems. Shout out to our homie Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company. You can visit them at sixstarsociety.com. They just dropped their new space inspired line, including another set of comfy sweatpants, their Hasha line, or my favorite, the Melt 5 panel hat. They also have a fresh drop of their sold out Six Star Society credit cards. Which are nifty for breaking up freeze dried hash. And of course, as you would expect from someone named Six Star Society, everything is top notch from their materials to their customer service. So if you're looking for gear to show your love for the resin, you can find it at sixstarsociety.com and use our savings code, the letters T H I, to save 5% on your entire order. And last but never least, shout out to our homies Pele Polare. Your solventless jacketing specialist, who you can visit at pelepolareco.com. They provide you high grade equipment specifically made for hash makers, ranging from thermal jackets to help you battle condensation during washes to professional grade steel vessels in a variety of sizes. So, if you're a hash maker looking for tools made for you and your craft and making your process more efficient, find everything that you need. 
at pelepolarecco.com. That's P-E-L-L-E-P-O-L-A-R-C-O.com. And use our savings code, the letters T-H-I, to save 5% with Pele Polare. And the last thing I want to mention is that we're announcing a new live date for coffee and donuts with Adam and Friends in Tulsa, Oklahoma on February 11th and 12th. Tickets will go on sale on Monday, December 6th via Eventbrite. Check our Instagram bio for more info. We hope to see you there. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I'm stoked to be here with Baron of Nasha. You can follow them on Instagram at Nasha Extracts. What's up, Baron? How are you? Good. How are you, Charles? I'm doing good, man. Thank you for coming on and hanging out this week and showing me your lab. Yeah, it's been uh, really fun hanging out, kind of humble vibes all the way through. Yeah, I agree. I told you this interview is kind of a humble vibe. I'm going with the flow. I usually prep a little more for the interviews, but I thought it'd be cool to kind of do a little ad lib. So welcome. Thank you. So let's talk about Fresh Frozen a little bit, because that is a model that seems to be very popular now, and you've called it unsustainable. So tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, thanks for starting with such a controversial question. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think, you know, Fresh Frozen, uh, making hash from dry material, the farmer pretty much has to dry the material once and and then you know you can process it at any time it doesn't need to be stored like in a freezer it's pretty much set to go and it can last you know years almost right. with fresh frozen um, especially when you're talking about in the humbled context or fresh frozen coming out of like a warehouse you have to keep obviously the product frozen the entire way throughout this supply chain there's a lot of you basically need a condenser freezing something right. through the entire life of this hash or rosin. So that has its own kind of environmental and economic impacts. So kind of in a in a decade of climate change where we're all thinking about carbon input and things, not that, you know, the way we're making hash is completely pure like they were in India, where like there is actually no kind of carbon issues with just rubbing wet plants. Um, you know, we're still using freeze dryers with dry. It's just, it's a bit more when it comes to fresh frozen. Yeah, so shout out to Craig of Alpenglow. We were just hanging out with him earlier. That's one of the farms that you work with. And, you know, he's real into like the regenerative models. And he was mentioning that he really likes working with you in part because you don't do the fresh frozen because as a regenerative farmer, that last step of like, having a freezer full of stuff isn't the most regenerative. Yeah, and it's also just very stressful, kind of in a humbled context. Like, as a processor, if you're working with 30 different farms and all of their harvests are ready all at once, you know, and you have to coordinate, like, fresh frozen bucking crews and all all these freezer trucks and all these freezer trucks to come in and store all that material... Um, it makes it really difficult and stressful. Humboldt's used really used to kind of drying their weed and everyone kind of storing it over the winter um, in their respective spots. So it's a little less stressful. And that's kind of, I mean, it's not that I haven't done fresh frozen in the past. Um, I even went to the extent of doing just fresh. I would have conversations with Frenchie 
in French. He's like, you, you should try, it's just fresh. <laughs> and it was like, uh, I was like cutting plants and storing them in garbage garbage cans on my patio in the winter. And then we would be bucking and washing fresh. And yeah, it's just really stressful. Yeah, it's funny because you said this the other day. Somebody asked you about Fresh Frozen. You're like, I don't want to bring that kind of stress into my life. Yeah, pretty much. Talk to me about some of the advantages outside of having like less of a carbon footprint of working with dry material. So me personally, I prefer kind of terpenes because I'm used to kind of really hashy tastes. I don't really want that like green kind of flavor or that super fresh monoterpene kind of flavor. I really like deep and maybe even slightly fermented and developed flavors that you kind of get with dry. I also feel like excessive amounts of terpenes are scratchy on the throat. So I prefer kind of like a smoother smoke and I feel like dry achieves that. Do you feel like the effect because the terpenes are almost like a different profile of this same genetic varies as well in that? Yeah, so like if you take the same plant fresh and make hash out of it fresh frozen, that hash is going to taste very different than if you dried that hash and then let that hash age for about six months. It's it's going to, those terpenes, the monoterpenes are going to kind of evaporate or um, kind of stick, uh, start bonding together with other monoterpenes to create those polyterpene kind of chains. And for me, those are where you get these like deep, jammy, funky kind of flavors is in that later development. And with fresh frozen, especially if you never let that melt kind of cure at room temperature, you might not get those flavors. You mentioned being used to somewhat of a hashy flavor. Tell me how or why you got involved in hash. So I'm half Indian, half American. Okay. Um, I spent the first 13 years of my life in L.A. where I was born. And then uh, I moved to India for boarding school. And that's kind of where I got introduced to... Well, I smoked a little bit of my parents' stash that I would grab from them (laughs) unknowingly in LA, but I really started to smoke more weed when I was in India. Okay. And um, I would go to the local pawn shop or tobacco shop and then buy these little puris, which are like little bags of kind of seeded weed. And that's what I would be smoking in India kind of during high school. Um, So, and then after that, you know, when we're sick of kind of smoking all the seedy weed, that's when I was kind of getting more into hash and um, sourcing hash from the mountains in India. Right. And you told me yesterday that we were talking that you were in the South, so the herb itself is more prominent there than the resin. And like in the North, it's all about hash. Yeah, north of India is all about hash because they're all making charas. And charas is when you go to a live plant and you rub it between your hands. It's actually the first form of live resin or live rosin and that that doesn't require a freezer (laughs) talk to me a little bit about charas so like what did you learn about it i know you even got an opportunity to go out there and experience making it for yourself yeah so initially you know i was i i kept bouncing back from india to california 
throughout my life. And at a certain point after living in Humboldt, uh, when I went back to India, I kind of got used to a certain higher standard of cannabis. Right. So when I saw what people were smoking in the cities, I was kind of fed up. Um, And I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the mountains and see what's there. So I'd go to the mountains and kind of source from up there and bring it back down to the city to share with my friends. But that was kind of initially... And then after a while, I kind of didn't like the entire vibe of like smuggling things and kind of like being in the mountains and for business. So my last few trips, I would just spend a few months during harvest season and actually just go rub my own charas. Interesting. And you mentioned you had to kind of okay that obviously with some of the locals and that was in part possible because you were able to speak the language. Yeah, so I speak Hindi, so but I don't look like I'm completely Indian. So when I get up to the mountains, you know, like they would get shocked for a second, but then I was able to speak Hindi and be like, hey, I'm not here to buy kilos and smuggle it somewhere. I'm here to just kind of like rub my own stuff. And I was able to make these deals where I'd rub with the locals and their field, especially because like most of the time they were making something called business mall. And mall means stuff, so business stuff. And they were making business stuff because they were rubbing the the plants really hard. And when you rub the plants really hard, you get way more, but you get a lower grade. So I was really interesting to rub cream is when you kind of lightly caress the plants. And that's when you get this beautiful kind of full melt goodness. Yeah, and I've heard it takes quite a while to actually achieve getting a decent amount on your hand. Yeah, so if you're making cream and like one you're in the village and you have to hike up to the bagichas and the bagichas are the farms. So there's like a one and a half hour like walk at least okay. to get to these bagichas and also you're at like 10 to 13,000 feet, so walking feels very different up there. So you start off with like doing this track and then you're rubbing all day, and then you come back, and basically you're you're lucky if you can rub maybe like five or six grams of cream, right? Um, so like a whole day of work, you can maybe make five to ten grams. Yeah, it's hard work. And another thing you mentioned, and this is always kind of a fascinating thing, is you said that there's all types of people within like a family doing it anywhere from the elderly to the young kids. Yeah, so during harvest season the whole village is rubbing hash down from the little kids all the way to the grandmothers. So it's it's really cool to see you know a lot of the locals don't actually smoke even. They might use it for medicinal purposes. They make like chutney and sauces out of the leaves and thing. But it's more of an export. Yeah. Yeah, or used medicinally, you know. Those villagers also um, collect other medicinal plants and roots from up there. So I think they really treat it as medicine rather than recreation. Yeah. They like to drink whiskey for recreation. That's funny. Another thing you brought up that I thought was an interesting point is that a lot of the varieties up there are high in CBD, which affects, in a way, how the resin performs once you isolate it. Yeah, so it's it's and this is kind of a discovery that I've been slowly starting to understand after years of hash making is when you add CBD to hash it gives a certain consistency and stability. So a lot of the plants in India 
are lower THC than what you would find here, um, and they have quite a bit more CBD. And this gives you this like ooey, gooey kind of really nice resin that's stable, and it won't really kind of nucleate, and it's really different. Have you seen a lot of genetics that quote-unquote wash well that are high in CBD? So, like, I think one piece is kind of, we did this project with Sunbolt Farms, and it was a cross between Humboldt Seed Company had Willie G's Wonder, which is a CBD strain that originated from Lebanon, and Sunshine crossed it with her best hash maker, NorCal D slash Rebel Moon, and created this super, super melty, amazing hash. It's actually kind of sad because... It was such a small batch, and most people don't buy CBD hash on the like legal rec market. So we we kind of just ended up doing R and D. Yeah. So this is one thing that we were talking about is the fact that people seem to be high on wanting CBD, but you said that if you actually make the product in the stores, it's not something that people are typically excited to buy because they're looking for a certain percentage of THC. Yeah, I mean, people are really hyped. You know, people are really hyped on medicinal value and entourage effect and full spectrum, all these kind of buzzwords. But if you actually look at the data, consumers in the California rec market are pretty much just calculating how little can I spend on the most amount of THC. On the majority, there's definitely like people coming in that are a bit more sophisticated and understand flavor. I always like to use the analogy like, when you go to a liquor store, it's not like everybody's buying Everclear because that's the cheapest, highest alcohol. You know, There's people buying craft beer and wine, and it might be way more expensive. So I think we're just at the beginning of the market, and people, you know, it's going to take time for people to understand. Yeah, I was going to say, with the other model, it seems like there's been more time for people to have more education, more exposure, and this is all still relatively new for the general masses, you could say. I mean, this is the first time in history, really, like, there's, like, a recreational market coming from an underground market that's actually pretty sophisticated in terms of, like, genetic diversity and the amount of products. Like, even before it went legal, we had all these products. Like, you know, people weren't vaping grape juice and things like that. But before... You know, they're definitely vaping cannabis before it went legal. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I think, the first time in history we're kind of seeing this. Yeah, and so you still entered during the t- Prop 215 era, and that's where Nasha got its start as a brand. But you were in California before that and kind of got acclimated to hash making. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the first time I made hash was up in, up in Humboldt. And it was like 2006 or 2007. Okay. And I had got snowed in and we were kind of figuring out like what to do because all the roads were like blocked. And I was at a friend's place and he's like, well, I have some trim and I'm about to make some hash. And I was like stoked um, to make hash with him. So we actually like got in like snowboarding gear and then headed out to his balcony, put a bunch of trim in a trash can um, with we used a two-bag setup at that time. So there was like something caching the plant material and then the hash bag. And then we stuck a pressure washer and we were like blasting this trim. 
um, into oblivion, and uh, we made a bunch of mediocre hash, but that was my first experience, and I was pretty much hooked after that. And then after that, though, you got some experience on a farm kind of by yourself that actually had some kind of machine there that you were using? Yeah, so, like, I think after that point, I kind of got addicted to making hash and kind of seeing, and obviously I love smoking it. And I I got introduced to this one farm up in Humboldt, and uh, he he had a bunch of trim. And back in the day, the farmers didn't want to hold the trim because they didn't want to like go over a certain limit and go to jail. So he had an entire basement full of trim, and he had these bubble bags and this French lingerie machine, and it was like to wash like lingerie and delicates. And uh, he's like, yeah, go ahead, make hash. Let's do a 50-50 split. So, uh, I, was that pretty normal at the time? The 50-50, yeah. Yeah, it was just you know nice and even. Like, hey, I don't want to deal with this. You deal with this. You put in work. And that's when I was kind of really making hash on my own. But like, I would, I would wash for like 15 minutes or 30 minutes because there are so many bags. And then, you know, drain, collect my hash, and then start again. And... Like right now, we wash for more than five hours. So I was definitely leaving a lot of material behind. Yeah, it sounds like you had so much that it was not, just not basically not worth going through. A yeah, I was like, cool, we get like, I mean, I remember my um, my friend at the time, she was helping me out. And she's like, do you think we should maybe put the same material in again? And I was like, no, we have too much to do. Um, so that's hilarious. And so, how were you washing back then? Were you using ice and yeah. everything? Okay. Yeah. So we were um, buying ice from the gas station, and then um, and yeah, washing, running through bags. Like w- we were in the middle of the forest, so we would just drill a hole into the trash can and then just let the hash water drain out. Like we didn't use any pumps, or it was like pretty primitive. Like I would lift you know i think the machine had a pump to get the water out but like the entire draining system was really laborious and manual manual and we didn't have full mesh filters either so it was like almost really hard to like lift up 20 gallons of water yeah <laughs> and no technique in terms of like how we were receiving um, yeah it was pretty rudimentary but we made some decent hash at that point were you also still using the two-bag system? There? No, definitely not. No, I had a 73-bag in there for sure. I had a 73-45 and a 160. Yeah, that's kind of like Frenchie used to run something similar. To no, like Frenchie definitely didn't put the 73-bag in there. 73 was the yellow-colored bag. I think they were bubble dude bags or isolator bags. And that's when we're like, that's the gold bag. You know, we're always looking what's coming out of the gold bag. Right. And yeah, we wouldn't even smoke the 45, really. It would be like, ah, that's food grade. Do you remember any of the varieties that he was running? Because that was one of the things is like, it wasn't for hash. It was just like whatever was was there. Yeah, I mean, he was the, he had his own breeding and seed program. So like any of his names... Like, I do remember one, like, Aota, all of the above. That's one they were messing around with. But, like, it was, I think it was, like, 
you know, there's probably some Kush in there. There's probably some Blue Dream. Yeah, stuff that was popular. Blueberry Short, uh, DJ Short's Blueberry, um, I remember. And were they, I guess the point of me asking is, were they producing? Were they dumping hash? I mean, I don't even think I was keeping track of the number. Like, I was just like, I'm putting this weed in. And then this <laughs> I'm getting 50%. Out. And then, like, yeah, I mean, I was a, like, it was not structured at right. all. I was like 20 something. But the funny part to me is what you ended up doing with that hash because you had a kind of unique connection from having been in India. And you had a very particular market down in SoCal that you were dealing with. Yeah, so like we ended up doing the 50-50 split, but then like the farmer didn't know what to do all this hash. So I'm like, hey, let me buy the other 50%. So I would end up like taking all the runs and then uh, driving it down to SoCal. And I had a bunch of friends kind of from India and they were used to smoking Indian hash. So that was kind of like my connect and plug and... Yeah, they were looking for that type of hash. Yeah, and we were pressing it. Right. I wasn't pressing it, but I was giving it to them, and then they were pressing it. Interesting. So you were just giving them the loose resin in this? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I I didn't really have a place to press. I was just kind of drying it, putting it in the Ziplocs, and then kind of getting out of there. What was there? Because I'm assuming a lot of the people from India that had come over were used to the charas. Yeah. And yeah. you were doing the ice water. Yeah. What was their reaction to that difference? Did they feel it at all? I think it was like something's better than nothing. Kind of, you know, either they would, because there were dispensaries at that time. Right. So sometimes, occasionally, they would find hash in the dispensaries, but it was really hard to find. So, yeah, I think they were just stoked that they were getting hash at all. And they didn't have to smoke weed. Yeah. Another funny thing was your dad ended up helping you out once he saw you keep doing this up yeah. and down. Yeah. I mean, my dad wasn't so involved in the hash kind of thing. Right. Um, but my dad was a cannabis activist. Um, and, you know, he definitely helped out, um, like, gather signatures for 215. Um, you know, he would give me b- books like the... Um, he, he, you know, he was definitely the emperor in, wears no clothes. Yeah, emperor. Yeah, you read my mind. The emperor wears no clothes. So there was definitely he was into weed, but along with the hash, I was kind of brokering some weed from NorCal to the dispensaries in SoCal. So we kind of did a father son business for a while, brokering, and that kind of got him eventually. After you know, he took it to a whole nother level and started um, started dispensaries. What have you seen as a challenge from a brand that moved from the 215 era into Prop 64? I mean, there's so many challenge, so many challenges in terms of like I'm I'm luckily luckily like I've been kind of I had the intention to do it the whole time. Um, so we're always looking forward. Like I had child resistant packaging before it was required. We would test stuff with SC Labs and comply to Berkeley, Berkeley like pesticide and microbial limits before it was required. So we were kind of always kind of gearing up for Prop 64 and legalization. I think something I miss is the freedom. Like in 215, there's like a certain sense of like freedom. Like I could go down to my hash cellar, open up any jar I wanted. 
and take as much out as I wanted. I didn't really have to report to anyone. Now, like, there's an entire process. If I want to take a piece of hash out to smoke or try, I have to go to into metric and adjust it and write them a report how I'm quality controlling it. And uh, it, yeah, it just feels like I have a new partner in the business, uh, which is Uncle Sam. <laughs> yeah, and I've heard they take it. A nice chunk of... They take a nice chunk, but there are some nice things about it. Like, I mean, when I was in the 215, when when I first started the company and we're still in the 215 realm, I literally had to package, I I washed all the hash, I packaged it all myself, I had to put it in a car, drive it down to LA, sell it, you know, deal with all this cash... Like, it was pretty stressful. I mean, I remember one time on my way back up from the bay, I got pulled over, and the cop, he pulled me over, like, right in Marin, and he was like, your car smells like weed. And I'm like, I didn't smoke any weed. And then, luckily, he was about to search my car, but when I handed him my license, he dropped it, and he couldn't find it. And for some reason, like... My license, um, he actually dropped it in my car and it fell under my seat. But because he couldn't find my license, he just let me go. But like, I was like, I was like a 215 company with like Humboldt Humboldt County license. But that's still that level of stress was still there. Now it's pretty chill. Like, I have like a set pickup date and like this big semi comes and picks up pallets of hash, you know, every two weeks. Um, Right. So there's definitely like some convenient parts. So let's talk about the pallets of hash. You're in quite a few stores and your model seems to be working. So tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, I think I think because we always had the intention of being in the legal market and I always thought about it from a consumer's point of view, like personally I wish I could do whole plant every single day. But when I would like reverse engineer the numbers, I realized that like it would be really expensive to the end consumer. So we kind of just stuck with like a trim model so we can keep costs down and kind of deliver a lot of value to the consumer. So yeah, I think we're in like 270, 300 stores across California. And we deliver like a high quality product for a price that when I put myself, because I was a chef in my past life, when I was working, you know, for $12 an hour in the Bay Area, like I could never afford a $90 gram. So I'm always kind of producing hash for people that need to kind of smoke on a budget. Yeah, that's fair. And then I've told you, and I've mentioned this all the time, I just feel like there's so many different markets and different needs. And I think this is a, creative solution to provide people, you know, some quality hash at a reasonable price where, like you said, not everybody can afford $100 grams of hash all the time. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's interesting to see the shift, though. Like, when I first started off, my lowest grade would sell the most um, as far as dollar value and quantity. And I would be begging people, like, Please buy the first pool, like Temple Ball. This is such beautiful hash. Or like, I made some like whole plant stuff, and I would have to beg people. And when I create, I created this kind of grading system with colors on our boxes. So we have boxes that are green color on the a green box, and an orange box, and a red box, and a blue box. 
And I started putting in little inserts to tell people about um, what's in these boxes and what it represents and how melt is important to flavor and smoothness. And recently, I've in the past year, I've kind of seen a shift that we're actually selling more temple balls and more red box now than we are the lower grade. So I can already see like the consumer getting like more sophisticated and people kind of just need education. Did that come like as an added cost to your business is adding this information to them? The funny part about it, so I print all on craft boxes. So I asked my printer, there's always negative space while they're printing boxes. So I'm like, hey, can you print this in like that extra <laughs> spot? So no, it doesn't cost me anymore. No, that's great. Um, yeah. You can use it as a roach too. That's funny. I think Craig was mentioning that, that you can use it as like yeah. a little crutch. No, but that's cool. So yeah, the other thing I found interesting is that, so you talked about the colors and the grades and your green grade, if I remember correctly, is kind of like the lower grade. Yeah. And that's what you sell as loose resin or like what you would see as typically high grade on the you know, higher scale kind of or more higher priced hashes. Yeah, so we have two consistencies. We have a temple ball, which is like a hand-pressed, one gram, hand-rolled. Uh, well, it's not hand-pressed. It's pressed with the machine, but hand-rolled. And our temple ball is always like a certain quality of melt. And our lower grades are powder. So traditionally, or in like the high-end hash world, you would want to press all the stuff that's kind of melting but has some imperfections into rosin. Right. And then you would keep like the best hash in powder form. But what we found is like if I put really high quality powder in the jar, it's going to grease out. And when you're in this many stores, kind of chasing the distributor and the retailers to keep everything cold all the time is something I just don't want to do. So when we have really good resin, we press it so it's easy for the consumer. What do the numbers tell you about what people like between the loose resin and the temple balls? Right now we're outselling, like we're selling more temple balls than we are powder. So like you said, you've been seeing a shift. Yeah, there's definitely a shift. Weird enough, like also Frenchie's passing. I think Frenchie's passing. He brought so much attention to, to hash making and kind of like replicating traditional hash but using ice water he brought so much attention to that while he was living but um after he passed away i feel like there was a, like a lot of buzz as well so i think a lot of more people are like oh yeah temple balls which is like interesting how it is you know when artists pass away or great minds pass away um you know sometimes what their life's work becomes more popular um after they pass that is interesting. So just to clarify, your blue boxes are the high grade. Yeah. So our blue boxes are guaranteed to melt and puddle down and leave very little char. We always we actually put on those inserts that you should not dab these, but if you do, they will leave some char. Interesting. Because I just didn't want like people calling me say, this is dabbable, but then like you chaz my banger, bro. <laughs> um, so yeah. so would you say like it's more meant to be a complimentary hash to like, for example, some flour or something like that? I feel like our blue blue grade hash 
is for spliff smokers that want the highest grade of hash. Okay. Like I think that's that's why people are smoking the blue grade. And that's your preferred method of smoking as well. Spliffs? Yes. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, that's kind of growing up in India and that kind of European influence in India, like everyone kind of smokes spliffs or chillums with tobacco in them. So I kind of just got used to smoking spliffs. I can't, it's really hard for me to smoke weed. It's a lot of like plant material, but for some reason I can smoke tobacco and hash. It also, tobacco and hash gives you a certain kind of high. The tobacco opens up your capillaries and then you get this high THC cannabinoid content. So it kind of, it creates this feeling and once you kind of like it, that's kind of what I do. But my hope is that I smoke more rosin and stop smoking cigarettes and splits in the future. Yeah. Do you see that more just like as a health thing? Yeah, I can feel it in my lungs. Definitely the constant tobacco use. And then as a company, I'm curious, moving forward, do you see the general public like moving away from smoking more? Yeah, I definitely I definitely see that. I think, you know, as as the hardware becomes a bit more sophisticated, right now, I don't think like the vape hardware is super great for rosin. It's starting to become um, as more companies get into it. But I think in the next five to ten years, like the vape hardware um, will start to get really customized to smoke rosin. And I think that will bring a, a whole other kind of solventless revolution to where people have the option of smoking live resin with added terps that have like 14% terps in them that are you know tickling their throat or <laughs> um, smoking this kind of really pure rosin or they can just smoke hot dog water, distill it. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how that all shifts and... Uh, how everybody kind of adjusts to that. But I think this is a good time for a smoke break, you down. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Shout out to our main sponsors, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. One of the things I really love about working with Rosin Evolution is their sense of innovation. They already provide you high-grade, reliable nylon bags to wash your hash and to squish your rosin. But like I mentioned in the intro, they've just released a limited edition version of their 32-gallon wash bags in a 250 micron inspired by the extra big heads grown by Jay Plant Speaker and processed by Solventless Mine. So although Rosin Evolution is really good at what they already do, they're not afraid to innovate reactively to producers' needs, which I find really cool and useful. So if you need anything to make rosin, including rosin bags, wash bags, or parchment, along with top-notch customer service, visit Rosin Evolution at rosinevolution.com and use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710. That's THI710. Altogether saves you 5% on your entire Rosin Evolution order. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So tell me why Humboldt, because you were ironically telling me that you didn't want to be in the mountains strictly for doing business in India, but you're in the mountains doing business in California. Yeah, I mean, I think at a certain point, I tried to do a lot of different things in my life, like worked with my family's real estate company in India, and I tried being a chef and working in a bunch of restaurants, and invariably... 
I always kept doing hash things and weed things on the side. So at a certain point, I kind of just stopped fighting it. And I'm like, all right, this is my thing. And uh, yeah, I, I was working in kitchens in San Francisco. And I was working for like $12 or $13 an hour, like actually losing money, working like 60 hours a week. And eventually I was just like, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore. And my sister and brother-in-law were opening up a dispensary in SoCal. So I was like, hey, I'm going to go help them open the dispensary. And I moved from San Francisco to LA to help open that dispensary. And I think on like day four of opening it, like private detect, uh, the detectives walked in from the LAPD and they're like, who's the owners and like what's happening. And then a few months later, we actually got raided. And that's when I'm like, look, I don't want to go away from weed again. I really want to keep working in cannabis, but I want to go to a place that I'm not going to be persecuted. And that's when I made the decision to move up in 2016 to Humboldt and start a hash company. And how did you start building relationships with farmers? Did you already have relationships with them? Um, so I, like I knew like one or two farmers. So yeah, I just started working with those one or two farmers. Humboldt's like a really kind of community-driven um, place and a pretty small place. So you know, if you work with one or two farmers and like you pay on time and you're a nice person to work with, then like they'll be like. Oh, well, I don't have any material left, but my neighbor does, and then my neighbor does. So um, kind of going like that. And then there's some, like, the, I remember there's the Golden Tarp Awards, um, which was down in Garberville. And I would kind of go to these, like, cannabis award kind of festivals or mar- farmer's markets and meet a bunch of farmers. That's where I actually met Sunshine from Sunbolt Farms and... She actually, she had the idea and she wanted to kind of, she grew one of the most natural ways, very similar to how somebody would grow in India, is where you just till a piece of land. You might till in like a little bit of nutrients, but not like a whole lot. You you till in cover crop and they were actually dry farming in that region. So there's certain spots in Humboldt and other places around the world where you can actually grow cannabis without water. And I started washing her stuff, and it was just the most incredible stuff. So I I really got excited about working with farmers that are dry farming. And not to exclude, you can only dry farm in certain regions. So you, you have these mountain farmers like Craig that it might not be viable to dry farm at Craig's farm, but he uses Google culture and um, principles of biodynamics and really working with the microbes and not really adding like a bunch of salt nutrients and bagged fertilizer. They're pretty much building the soil on the farm and from things that they found around them. And what I've noticed is farms that are working like that or working like sunshine and dry farming produce the best resin. So that was going to lead me into my next question is what type of things are you looking for in a cannabis cultivator as a hash processor? Well, there's there's the first step is making sure the cultivator understands 
that like hash is not like a byproduct. Because in Humboldt, it was always like, we're growing flour. And then, and then, oh yeah, there's this trim that comes out and you can make some hash from it. So working with farmers that have the paradigm shift, that understand that they're farming for resin and not just like biomass. So then they actually start to care about like when they're harvesting it and should we drive a bunch of ATVs around <laughs> the farm and like get them completely dusted up. So that paradigm shift's important. The other thing is like I prefer to work with farms that are growing in native soil and not feeding their plants a bunch of salts because I really want kind of the purest kind of expression of the plant. But also I want to make sure that the farms are practicing regenerative agriculture and not not buying all this bag soil and then discarding the soil and then buying all these chemical fertilizers. It's really weird. The state's not testing like whether there's chemicals or sulfur in any of the product. They're testing for these particular like pesticides. But all these other kind of regenerative components, they're not really testing for. Neither is the USDA like really saying that cannabis farms can be organic. So there is no certification from the government in terms of how clean and sustainable the cannabis farm is. There are trade groups like Dragonfly Earth Medicine and a few others that um, are doing it. So, you know, big shout out to them for really trying to organize that and then being able to put a stamp on that. Yeah, and you told me a kind of funny story about maybe hollow flowers or something recently when someone came seeking to, you know, talk to you about maybe working together. They were a cultivator and they were bragging about things that you don't particularly <laughs> care for. Oh, yeah, you know, they're, they're like, hey, I got this 50,000 square foot warehouse we just built out, super high end, dositrons, and we're feeding with salts and great getting great yields and I'm like I'm really don't want to work with you. <laughs> I do. I still like wash a little bit of indoor. Maybe it's like 10% of what we wash per year just to keep seeing if there's any outliers because I'm generally interested. I haven't got the experience of like washing something that's been cultivated inside no till living soil. Um, kind of like what 710 was talking about in your interview with them. Or I, I think like a few other farms and definitely some homegrown hash makers are doing some soil stuff that's really cool. I just haven't had the opportunity to do so. Do you think that's in part because fresh frozen kind of would eat up that market, for example? Fresh frozen would eat up which market? Indoor living soil, would they just fresh freeze pretty much all that weed typically? Yeah, I think if you're putting that time in, if you're at that consciousness level that you want to go for like the next level and kind of be God and create this entire ecosystem in this room, you generally are into either really high quality flour or into really high quality hash. So you'd pretty much want to keep it in house. Right. And that's something we talked about that like it's interesting in your model, it's more like India, in the sense of you're doing it more like in a traditional way, minus obviously the water process? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of not like India. I mean, India is the most kind of ecologically sustainable 
way of hash production because those villagers are are taking their goats in springtime. The goats are eating the brush. Um, they're pooping all over the place for the fertilizer. And there's been seeds from previous years or they're spreading more seeds and kind of just letting it grow. And then when they come back during harvest, they're putting, they're only taking the resin out and putting the rest of the biomass back into the soil. So they're not really taking anything out besides for this resin, which is like a really small amount of this entire carbon and nutrient cycle. We try to do something similar where we vermicompost all the trim that we process and all the flour we process. And then we kind of cure that compost for about a year and then try to return it back to farms. Or we work with the local warm guy who's you know, helping us at a certain point, we reached our capacity of what we could compost on site. So he's taking our stuff and then he spreads it back to kind of local farmers buying his compost. Yeah, you were showing me some of the stacks and you said you were hoping to do that, but it just turned into kind of too much. Yeah, I mean, after we had 15, 250 gallon um, totes of it, I'm just like, okay, I have an entire wall of my property that's just composting um, right now. So I was like, I need some outside help. No, but I think that's pretty cool and just a cool way of being able to, again, keep within this. Yeah, so we're trying to like, you know, keep the nutrient cycle in a circle, trying to kind of close that loop. And we're local and that plays a really important role into being able to have the connections with the local worm guy that also happens to work with a lot of cultivators that I work with or a lot of garden supply store owners that end up working with cultivators that I work with. Right. And as a processor and seeing so much material and so much resin, can you tell which of the material has been grown in some of these better conditions like the native soil Oh, yeah. I mean, like I mentioned yesterday, I just talked to Hannah from Emerald Queen Farms, and she said that her native soil beds out-yielded in hash the potted soil plants by far. I mean, I can look at a piece of hash and burn it and smell whether there's residual salts left in, so like the flush wasn't great. Yeah, and it's funny, like I can pick up these little things but like when you give it to consumers that might not have like the experience connection with the farms, so they can't pinpoint like, oh, this is salty or not flush, but they do taste it. They'll be like, oh, something's not right. Yeah, your palate is probably much more developed per se, or like not even just your taste, but like smell. Like, yeah, I'm just melt testing all day long. And yeah, I was laughing. The- yeah, I, anytime any hash comes out, Baron's got a lighter ready to go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, that's like, because I'm looking, I'm not only looking at the way the hash melts, but also after after you see the oil bubble, hopefully there's some oil bubbling, but after that oil bubbling and starts bubbling and you start to get a little bit of char, I'm always smelling that char to see, like, does it smell like really good weed that just got smoked or does it smell like chemicals? So let's talk about processing hash. You process a lot of hash. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your process or how that's developed. So, yeah, I mean, it's just an ever, never-ending kind of exploration on how to make things more efficient. Like, back in the day, I was using one ice machine, a washing machine, a trash can, and a sump pump. Right. Um, And the sump pump was from Ace Hardware. 
and like it has all these weird filters on it. Like now that I look back on it, I'm like, that's pretty gross. Um, so I've definitely like gone into the brewery industry and the wine industry to source things that are made for food grade kind of applications. Um, you know, all our pumps kind of use pressure instead of impellers to them. Okay. Um, so they don't actually like touch the hash. You know, we have a completely HVAC climate controlled system, which again, that's not very environmental. The way I used to do it before is I just lived in the mountains and it was really cold and we would only make hash during the winter. So it's definitely, you know, moving a little bit away from being as like environmentally friendly, but everything's way more professional down to like the way we put hash on trays. I think I was being a little cagey and secretive about the machine I've been developing, but um, you got your way into videotaping Multiple it. Times. <laughs> <laughs> videotaping it anyways. So I've been working with uh, engineering firms to create a custom agitator. So we've put that into production, and that's kind of really interesting too. Part of that, which is what I'm looking really forward to it, is we created a shaft that has an adapter hub on it, and that adapter hub allows you to attach a variety of different impellers. Um, so for the next, um, I'm looking forward to this next R&D phase when we get to use all these different types of impellers and really optimize which impeller is best for hash making. Yeah, that's cool. I'll be curious to see. But your system is a bottom-down yeah. agitation yeah. versus from the top up. Yeah, bottom-mounted agitator. What have you found through your R and Ding of this machine, like in regards to yields and stuff? Did they hold up to how you were washing before? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely, the yields are the same. The quality is much better. I would say I'm able to control. Um, I'm able to control like how the RPMs. Um, so how gentle we are on the material. So with the washing machines, I'd noticed like after the first half an hour, hour, the water would turn. Sometimes it would turn pretty green, um, especially maybe hour three or hour four. But with this machine, we're able to keep the water golden throughout the process. And that's an indication that we're not breaking open plant material. And you mentioned earlier doing more washes per material now compared to when you were doing it on the French lingerie machine. So tell us about usually how many washes per cultivar. So that's a really interesting kind of question. Like I see people put it on their jars, first pull, second pull, but every hash maker has his own formula. So it's not really it's not really standardized throughout the industry. Uh, we do five washes. That duration is about five hours. Is that a standard to where? Is it reactive to what the resin is producing, or is it just like this is what no, we're going to do? No, we just do a we just do a standard. Yeah, we just always do the same kind of recipe, right? Partially because I'm not there washing all the time, so to kind of teach a crew of how to judge when something is spent or when to keep going, it's a little harder than being like, "Hey, do this set SOP." But there's definitely times when we have really fuego material where we'll do six and seven washes. Um, and so you'll do more, but not less. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, basically, what happens is after the material spent, if you keep on washing it, it just puts out this like poo poo green hash. The funny part about it is, if it comes from a cultivator that has been practicing regenerative cannabis and really high quality cannabis, even that green hash has a lot of medicinal value. It can be put into topicals, tinctures, edibles, like. So, like, it's an injustice if I'm just like, cool, I grab the meld and then let's just compost the rest. One thing is you you seem to be real hands-on. You like doing things. You talked about working in the kitchen and you talked to me earlier, I think, off record about liking to be in there, making the hash. Has it been a challenge for you having to kind of hand that off to employees? Yeah, initially it was. Um, initially, like I was the only one taking hash out of a freeze dryer, and I would do it seven days a week. There was a good like two or three years where I literally took out a freeze dryer every day of my life. But luckily, I found people that I can rely on, and so I kind of parceled that out. Um, as far as washing the hash, I think it's definitely the next step: being able to train a crew and put together a great, great team. And really being able to rely on people. Um, the current crew I have right now, I think like my my head washer, when I get in there with him, he's way faster, way cleaner, and way more precise than me. Like, so I would definitely say he's almost um a he's mastered that process. Repetition. Yeah, repetition and just his personality. So, like, I'm really lucky to have found people I can rely on, and they've actually exceeded like my ability to go in there and bust it out in the same amount of time as cleanly. My brain, like, where I like to be though, like, if I could turn my email off and my phone off and just wash for a week, like, that's my like happy place. And it seems like the last few years it's been hard. To do that because I'm always getting an email or a call or have to attend to something that yeah different responsibilities yeah it's just business I mean I do I do all the compliance in my company uh, a lot of the accounting I do HR hiring firing performance reviews yeah that was one me. thing you told me was important for you for people to be aware of is you're like from the outside in sometimes people think. Or like this big corporation, but it's really just Baron and, and team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have uh, I think nine people, ten people on the team, so it's a pretty small team. Shout out Olia. Yeah, um, Olia definitely helps out with a lot of things. But yeah, I wish definitely I was washing more. I, I got. I'm always able. Recently, I've been more in the washroom more. We've been actually running seven days a week. And then definitely when we're R&Ding new pieces of machinery, I'm always there for a few days to help set the SOP. Because every new piece of machinery has its own like idiosyncrasies. So let's talk about that because you hear about SOPs a lot. What is an SOP? A standard operating procedure. Outside of like what it is, what is it, you know? An SOP is like a recipe. You know, it's like... You do this at this point, and this at that point, and you know, so on. But like, I mean, I have a when I make hash, I have a hard time following my own SOPs, <laughs> you know, because like, but you need to create rules for people to like and have consistency. Um, but like, 
you know, my cleaning round. I do something called a cleaning round. So when we soak all the material, um, we agitate for a certain amount of time and then flush the water out because we're dealing with outdoor farms and there can be dog hair, soil, and, and anything above, you know. Humble to moldy place, you know. There's actually like microbes and mold growing everywhere, so that helps clean the material um, before we actually have any hash that we're going to put on the market. So, like, my team knows the SOP for cleaning indoor is a certain amount of agitation, and the SOP for cleaning greenhouse is an agitation, and outdoor. But when I do it, like, I don't follow those rules. I look at the color. Of the water, and then I'm like, all right. More by feel? Yeah, I do a lot of things by feeling. So how much are you washing a day typically? We we wash around 30 to 50 pounds per day. And this is, again, dry material? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, because I don't talk to a lot of people who do a lot of dry material. What is the proper way to rehydrate this material, in your opinion? So again, it depends. My SOP is half an hour. Um, okay. For soaking, but um, if if we have really dense nugs, I might soak for longer. If we have really dry material, I might soak for longer. If we have really moist material, I might soak for a little bit less. Okay, and how does that vary? It just varies from how the farmer has dried this material? Yeah, yeah. So when we're intaking dry material in July and it's 100 degrees at the farm and the farmer has stored like something in a barn and that material has 100 degrees, you know, it's going to be pretty crispy. I like to intake all my material right after harvest so I can keep it temperature controlled in the facility. But, I mean, there's a limited amount of space that I can have for intaking. Right. And once you collect that material... What kind of process is it going through after the wash? Um, so we freeze dry. Um, I'm assuming you mean the drying process? No, I mean more like the filtering process. Um, you can obviously give away as much or less. I mean, that's a little proprietary, but it goes through a bunch of bags with <laughs> okay. a bunch of pumps. Um, I think that's something I'm most proud of is how we drain because we have a symphony of VFDs variable frequency drives and different pump pressures. And uh, it's like playing a little orchestra of moving water around. Yeah, you have an interesting system. I got the opportunity to see multiple systems here from multiple processors. And it is interesting to see how everybody is kind of doing the same thing in a little bit of a different way. But pumps definitely seem to play a factor into all these setups. Yeah, pumps are really important and uh, to like... To all the hash makers out there, definitely try to look into the CAD documents and the engineering behind your pumps and really see how those pumps are working. Because some pumps are uh, pretty hard on the material, especially if there's hash in there. Yeah, but again, it definitely seems to be a way to scale up. Oh, yeah. I mean, or you just get really buff lifting trash cans. (laughs) Yeah, you need a lot of buff people too, though. That seems like to process that amount of material. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's some producers out there. You know, they're rocking rocking their hand mixers and still like picking up trash cans, and they can actually process a lot of material. So 
I don't think you necessarily need it, but it's yeah, doing it 365 days a year get pretty intense without pumps. Yeah, and so you mentioned the freeze dryer. So once they get collected, they go into the freeze dryer, yep. and you actually like to run it a little longer than I've heard most people. Like yeah, so it. I mean, it's also a quantity a quantity thing. So in each of our freeze dryers, we might have anywhere from 800 to 1,200 grams, and we're filling up multiple freeze dryers per day. So when you're when your hash is thick. Or like you filled up a lot of that tray, you're going to need to freeze dry for longer. Quality hash also determines the freeze drying time. If there's like a lot of, we used to do patty tech. So back in the day, we're kind of emulating what Frenchie was doing. And we're like making these little bricks. And if you make bricks out of full melt, you push the water inside of the brick and I have pictures, and actually Facebook reminded me today of like bricks of that we were taking out of the freeze dryer, and like you could see like the oil bubble kind of on the side, and the water like trying to come out, and that it just kind of stagnated. So the evolution of how we put hash on a freeze dryer has really changed throughout the years. Right? Do you think it's also just in part the understanding catching up? with the technology and the technology advancing at the same time? Um, what, what do you mean? I mean, the technology is getting better in the freeze-dryer sector over time. It's, I, don't I don't really feel like think it's, it's like... I don't really think it's getting better. I think Harvest Right's kind of doing the same. Yeah, but like for example, I've heard you before you couldn't change like shelf temperatures or like there were certain degrees that it could reach or wouldn't Well, no, reach. I always bought scientific, scientific freeze-dryers. Um, Which is how you said you learned a lot. Yeah, so I would always set my custom profile, and I tested the extreme ends of, like, I remember my first few runs, like, I was, like, set the freeze dryer, I was like, ah, 80 degrees? And, like, if you freeze dry hash at 80 degrees, like, it decarbs. So I definitely was able to test, like, the upper bounds, and then I did a lot of research into, like, how freeze drying actually works. So then I learned like, hey, like I want a gradual increase in temperature and then lowering it and then increase again to like a peak and then lowering it and then going like and finishing off at like a lower temperature. So I made my own kind of profile. Um, right now the freeze dryers have some algorithm that's detecting temperatures and kind of doing the same kind of thing. Actually, I was looking through a log file of what the algorithm's doing and it's actually pretty close to what I designed with the scientific freeze dryers. So yeah, it's interesting to see that comparison between your profile and kind of almost like the set profile that they have. Yeah, it's actually pretty similar. So I guess I was I was doing what the computer optimized to do later. It just I wasted a bunch of hash in the process. I mean, that's what I heard. You got to take a bunch of L's to to learn how to do it properly kind of thing. But one thing I think is worth mentioning is something that I've heard from other people. Again, when I don't do these things, it's a little hard to, but the freeze dryers, at least the home units, only have sensors on a few of the shelves. All of them. All freeze dryers have thermocouplers only on certain shelves. So you have a different rate of sublimation on every single shelf of the freeze dryer. Right. Meaning one shelf 
could be, for example, harder yep. than another shelf, but you wouldn't know because it's just like an average of it's, like that one it's shelf. It's not even an average. It's only that one shelf. <laughs> All right, even um, worse. They, yeah. they uh, like, and I talked to the CEO of Hyrus right about it. I'm like, I'm like, why is there no thermocoupler on every single shelf? He's like, how do you know that? <laughs> I'm like, well, I've messed around with these things. I mean, after harvest rights break down a lot. So at this point, I've pretty much disassembled and reassembled a bunch of freeze dryers myself, from the scientific one to the pharmaceutical one. Um, I haven't had much experience with the home one. Um, but yeah, you really, because there's no harvest right tech in Humboldt that you can call and be like, hey, my machine's not working. You kind of just have to open them up and then have Harvest Right on like the phone, and they're constantly breaking. I remember at a certain point, Harvest Right with the scientific units didn't have all their condenser coils um, with insulation um, completely on them, or the one they built <clears throat> wasn't built in a great way. So there's actually condensation building on that condenser coil. And when you defrosted, that would melt onto the solid state relay board. Um, and that was short out all the time. Um, so I had to like modify and put plates underneath to catch the water. Like, you know, if you have a leaky roof or something, fun stuff. Yeah, interesting stuff, you know, stuff that like you only figure out by, by doing. Yeah. So does all the hash make the cut? Definitely not. I would say there's so many disappointing runs. Either there's not enough melt, or I find some sulfur residual, or or when I burn the hash, I'm getting like the flush wasn't great, so I'm smelling like salt. It's like too chemi. The strain's not right. Some strains are just not hash strains. Right. People, I don't think... Most people always remember, but cannabis is also something you make clothes and rope out of. So when you're playing around with genetics, if certain genetics are expressing those rope, those rope attributes, not really the best hash making strains. The other thing is like a lot of cannabis is grown in tropical regions. And when you're trying to like grow tropical genetics in Humboldt, they might not really go to their full expression or full potential. So it'll be really interesting to see as like Mexico comes online and Jamaica and uh, other countries around the world. Um, you know, maybe strains that we thought like, oh, this is not a hash strain. It never, it never dumps, it never works. Um, maybe that's just like a Humboldt, California thing and it actually will do really well somewhere else. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I'm not sure. What would you say is a percentage of hash that you put out from what you've made under the Nasha brand? And really just, I mean, it depends on the month. Sometimes like we have all, like when I'm working with the all-star farm, if it's like Alpenglow month, like we're putting out all of it. You know, if it's like, if we're kind of in the summertime and I've exhausted a lot of the full term and we're kind of relying more on um, indoor or like forever flowering greenhouses that are putting out product all year long. Um, I might reject 80% of what we made in a month. And what happens to that 
Uh, it'll just go to other companies that are maybe using it for like topicals or pre-rolls or edibles. Have you seen that sector grow as well where like these other companies are using solventless products? Huge, yeah. There's a tidal wave of solventless products coming up. I, I think the high is just better. You know, like you, you eat a distillate edible and you, sometimes I get paranoid and this kind of racy kind of thing. Because there's no other cannabinoids to occupy those spots um, in your endocannabinoid system. So you're only getting THCA. And like, I'm not the biggest fan of only THCA. Um, so when you have like a, I mean, rosin edible, yes, but when you have a true like ice water hash edible, it gives you this like warm blanket cloud floaty feeling, which you're still kind of like psychedelic, but you're still kind of like, chilled out, I think that's the best feeling. So I think people are starting to realize that. I mean, the funny part about it is the best-selling edible company in California, which is Kiva, pretty much exclusively used cold water hash in their edibles till they launched their kind of new Lost Farm live resin gummies. But all their chocolate bars and uh, their Terras all have cold water hash in them. Yeah, funny, my friend and I Shout out Luke. We used to really like Kiva. Yeah, like people, I haven't had it in a while, but and people don't even know that that's hash in there, and they kind of shy away from it a little bit because, like, I think their consumer is people who are kind of curious, so they don't want to be like, "This has like crazy hashish in it," you know, because <laughs> it might scare some people away. Right. Um, but I think like the consumers have spoken, and a lot of people are catching on. Yeah, no, that's cool. Like I say, I think the more solventless can be used, the better. And it has to, because as a hash maker, you're only going to get, like if you actually wash that material to its full potential, only like, you know, 40 to 60% of it is going to be melt. The rest isn't. So if people aren't going to smoke that other 40%, you have to do something with it. You might as well get a lot of people high. With edibles on it, yeah, and it also I feel like gives you a good opportunity to wash a variety of material. It's almost like a little R and D for your brand as well to be able to look through material, and if it doesn't make the cut, then you also have another outlet for it as well. Yeah, it's imperable for the survival. It costs us so much per day. Just a production day costs so much money. So there's no way I can just like compost all that hash so I need to find some place to put it great well cool you down for a second smoke break yeah let's do it all right I want to take a moment to thank every person that makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to keep producing episodes, including episode 34 with Baron of Nasha Extracts, and to give an extra shout out to some of our top contributors, including at Sandman underscore Hashstar, Reed the homie from Hiker Trash Cannabis in Maine, Mario in Illinois, Nick the intern, The Hash Hive, Hash and Hetties in SoCal, Kevin of Lifted and Dina, the good homies from Mission Hill Melts, MTS Farms, the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, Meltwalkie Jeff, the boys on the Big Island Pressing Faux Show, my dude the Real Cannabis Chris, our friend Gendo420, the homie Big C, David at Rosin Evolution, 
Jonah and Ryan in Illinois and Gastown Fire and their Green Cedar Retreat in Tofino. Thank you all so much. Now back to the episode. So let's talk about hash. Do you feel like what you're making is a different product than, for example, what the fresh frozen market is shooting for? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely it's definitely a different product. I think ways of consuming it because most of the hash I make, people wouldn't be dabbing, so they're either smoking it in a spliff or in a bowl topper or like something like a health stone or a three hole. Um, so the way of actually smoking is completely different. Um, so that means that will like attract a different type of clientele. I think the high is different. And I think the actual smoking, like the mouthfeel is completely different. I think the majority of the world smokes more hash than they do cannabis. So it's funny that like I'm this little niche outlier in California, but if we had a global open free market, like I would probably be, you know, making a lot more hash and being appealing to a lot more people. Yeah, it is interesting, man. And I've told you that, that you do seem to be kind of a little bit of an outlier here. But within the world scene, it probably would be pretty regular kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would kind of be the first thing people would be smoking if they're buying, if they could, if I could ship to Spain or Brazil or India or the Middle East. Um, you know, they would definitely buy the Temple Ball before they kind of explored the live rosin. Do you think that time will come? The time will come how how the borders come down. I mean, we still don't have global free trade of anything, really. So, like, I, I'm sure the EU will have their own regulations about bringing in hash and cannabis from California. The U.S. will have regulations about importing Stuff from Colombia, India, Morocco. I think even, I think it's going to be a federal mess on how we're even going to have interest rate state commerce. Because, like, even with alcohol, the way it's regulated, like certain places in Texas, like you can't just buy Napa Valley wine in that place in Texas. So, like, even like state to state is going to be weird. For a long time. So, yeah, I think it's definitely going to happen. It's just, is it like five-year, 10-year, 20-year horizon? Is Does the world still exist at that time? I don't even know. <laughs> so I guess we just sit back and watch. And how do you see the hash market kind of develop within the U.S. in particular? So, like, I think, like, I've been approached many times like hey do you want to bring your brand to like Oklahoma or Arizona or Florida and I don't know if like Nasha would do super well in all those states but I think other brands that are doing like whole plant fresh frozen live rosin will actually do really well in all those states because again I'm an outlier I'm usually selling to either like an immigrant community or an expat community who has experience like living outside of the U.S., or they're like really old school heads 
from the 60s and 70s were like, whoa, I can buy hash now. Um, so do you feel like it's in part, it's a, that familiarity to something that they've known and that's kind of why they gravitate towards it? Yeah, yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's why we made it is because we're trying to create something that we would smoke at home. So it's a, like comfort kind of feeling of smoking something that you would, but it's very different again, like, you know, the str- being strain specific and having all this high THC is very different from the hash that's being made in Nepal or India or Morocco. Right. And Morocco, probably a little less because Morocco has huge European genetic influence. So, and they've been like providing Europe for so long, but definitely India and Nepal. Yeah, their scenes are not quite as touch as Morocco, for example. Let's talk about Nepalese temple balls because this is something you get flack about on Instagram. Yeah, I mean, some people have uh, said that I'm appropriating Indian culture, which like I find really funny because I think they think I'm like, some hipster dude or some corporate cannabis company that was like, hey, let's appropriate this and try to sell it to these stoners. And like, it's so far from the truth because like, this is just a manifestation of who I am. I'm half Indian, I'm half American. I'm making Indian style hash in like an industrialized scientific American way. So like, they're telling me like, that like, I'm appropriating but I mean this is just me and me expressing who I am Um, so I find that kind of comical yeah I mean our hash is not charas like we at no place say it is charas on our boxes Um, we do call them temple balls and it's interesting like so I got the temple ball thing from Frenchie straight up Frenchie was promoting it and for me I was like kind of taking the easy way out by not bothering to like write pressed hash at this degree and trying to educate I was just like okay Frenchie's telling the story and if I write temple ball on this people will understand because he's like so good at telling the story so that's why you know we have temple balls being written on all our boxes The funny part about it is like if you go to India in the mountains and tell somebody I want a temple ball, they'll look at you like, what are you talking about? So like they have no idea. Um, When it comes to like the royal royal Nepalese temple ball, where kind of Frenchie's story came from, I still feel like the local Nepali people were not like making hash and being like, oh, we're making temple balls, you know? I think like Westerners came and saw these villagers like rolling balls of hash in their hands and then maybe sadhus were smoking it outside of the temple and they're like, oh, temple ball. So, you know, it brings a funny question like did Westerners come to Nepal and try to like create their own appropriation around temple balls? (laughs) And then am I appropriating the Westerners that appropriated the Nepalese people? So I don't really know. I'm doing my thing. Yeah, no, it's interesting, man. I I agree. There's there's definitely some interesting things to, to wonder about within that. But since we're on temple balls, we talked a little bit about your process. Talk to us about how the resin becomes a temple ball. So we get... 
we get dry, powdery hash from the freeze dryers. And um, before I used to age in mason jars. So there's this whole cool aging process that was happening. So we would fill like a, a mason jar up with like 100 to 140 grams and it would be like completely full. Okay. And then after like three or four months and we didn't have temperature control, like hash storage, it was just like this like cellar in a cinder, cinder block building. So it's kind of cool, but kind of not in the summer. And we'd watch this hash go from like an entire mason jar to like the small little puck. Um, but like eventually, like, you know, I'm chiseling hash out of mason jars and like, I really wanted to stick with glass aging in glass, but then we were finding with really high quality it was pucking up. So then we started wrapping in the turkey bag material that we press in. And then I'm like, all right, we're putting this stuff in plastic anyways. I might as well just like find a different way. Also, it was making me really nervous to have like millions of dollars of hash in glass because we're in earthquake zone. So I was just like, if there's an earthquake, all my hash is going to be filled with glass and on the floor. So we kind of moved out of that phase. But um, back to kind of what the process of making a temple ball is. So we get stuff out of the freeze dryer. And then we put it in between this high-grade plastic, which was chemical-free, rated for a high temperature. And we apply heat and pressure to the hash. And what's happening is the trichome membranes are breaking down and the oil is coming out of the heads and kind of congealing to itself. And the higher the grade, the less you kind of need to press it. The more oil content is it? Yeah, the more oil content there already is, but also we're decarbing. We're, so decarbing is making the THC more bioavailable, so I feel like you get like a little bit of a stony or high, as well as after you're, when you're pressing, you're also releasing all those volatile monoterpenes, so it's getting rid of kind of that fresh flavor, which is funny because like that's what all the fresh frozen guys are trying to preserve, I'm actually trying to like get rid of. So it helps with the development of all those like jammy, caramelized flavors. It's almost like a steak, you know, like when you have a Maillard reaction, which is like the changing of sugars and caramelization. So we're kind of doing that to the hash for the flavor. Like you said, you're looking for a certain type of profile coming from that. So once you put it on the press and you've got it kind of depending on the grade, Got to kind of heat it up. Are you then going in and doing the pressing, like kind of Frenchy style? Or? Yeah, I mean, we're massaging the hash and we have a double plate system. So it's almost like a huge rosin press. And, you know, we're not putting enough pressure on the hash to actually cause the oil to completely separate from the plant material, but just enough pressure and heat to have the oil break up and kind of, you know, congeal to itself. Right. And then once you get it to that point, what happens? Well, we'll keep pressing until it's the desired consistency, and then we, then we like make them into little snakes, and then we take off one gram at a time, and then roll them into balls. At what point do you decide if any of your product becomes rosin? So I like to take a little bit out of the first pull of a lot of different hash that we make, and I do a test press on it. And the reason I'm doing that is so... One, I want to understand the hash by melting it with a lighter on my hand. But 
when you rosin something, you get some hard data. So I know if we're like pressing for a hundred seconds or what, however many seconds at a certain temperature, monitoring those yields tell me how much oil is present in that hash. Um, and then you know, depending on the color of the rosin too, I can kind of see like. Did we mess up and wash too long because the rosin's coming out super dark? So through that process, I'm rosining for analysis rather than to put out a product. But when we find something that's like super beautiful and yellow and just delicious, I'll be like, okay, let's uh, launch a little bit of rosin. And it's always like a hard decision too because it means the hash is really good. So like, I really want to temple ball it too, but I know like I want other people to experience it as well. So it's always this fight in between like, should we rosin it? Should we temple ball it? So do you feel the type of person who's buying the rosin and the temple ball are different? Yeah, definitely different people. Is that why you're saying you want them to try it almost? So do you feel like the people, or maybe your data tells you this, that have tried your rosin will try your temple balls or vice versa? I don't think so. I think dabbers are going to dab. And then if you're chazzing the banger, like they're just not going to want to dab that hash. Right. Um, and I think hash smokers, I don't like, I don't really meet many hash smokers that also dab um, that are smoking like spliffs or like topping things or smoking out of a three hole, you know, so I feel like they're very different consumers. Yeah, it's either one way or another. Yeah, so when I make something really beautiful, I want to like have people experience it. And then we've taken it to a completely other level too. So we make infused pre-rolls and most people for their infused pre-rolls will put in like stuff that didn't melt, but we exclusively put in stuff that either we would press into rosin or that would be temple bowl. Into our infused pre-rolls. So your blue box, essentially. Uh, a red box. Yeah, The blue. red box is also melt. Yeah, the red box is also melt. Blue is designated for like a super cool regenerative farm that like we did whole plant with. Right. So, But we get melt out of trim, too. So like now we're, there's like a fight between the pre-rolls and the rosin and the temple wall. Who's going to use, which product is going to use this like beautiful hash? And the pre-roll is super cool because we can expose hash to people that wouldn't like normally try hash. Right. And it's extra cool because we're exposing them to like a higher quality of hash. So like their impression of hash isn't like, oh, this is super scratchy. It's like, oh, this is really smooth and I'm getting really baked. And what about the flour that goes in there? The flour we're sourcing, I love doing the the same flour with the same hash. Or we're doing intentional blends. So it's like recently we did like a wedding cake with a straw nana hash and taking like a deep kind of like super strong wedding cake flour that doesn't have much flavor well, it has like a gassy wedding cake sweet kind of flavor, but it's not like a pronounced fruit fruit flavor. And then mixing a fruit flavor in provides like a really fun smoke for people. Have those been popular? Yeah, I think I think they're they are popular. They're definitely like not the biggest part of our business. And then also just on the California rec market, 
there's so many infused pre-rolls. I mean, the shops are inundated with infused pre-rolls. And the consumer, it seems like the in, in the infused pre-roll game, like the consumer, most of the consumers are doing that calculation. How little can I spend on this joint? And what is that THC? So you have a lot of people that are taking trim, grinding it up, mixing in distillate, and then covering it with really low-quality keef. And then that's what's been selling the most. Yeah, I could see that. And, and I mean, or taking, like, they're adding terps to it. Are these cannabis terps, you believe? or I don't know. Some of them are, some of them <laughs> aren't. Like, I've, I've seen stuff that, like... I've seen stuff like I haven't smoked it, but like smelt it and smells like sour punch candy. Like I don't think that's like cannabis terp, but people are loving it. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and like we've talked about in this interview and other ways, like the education and people kind of educating themselves more is going to make things interesting going forward. Yeah, it's just going to take a long time, but I mean, it's it's people like you who are like doing these podcasts and like really taking the time to sit down with a bunch of hash makers and understand quality and putting in the work of education like stuff like this is what's going to make the difference for when the hopefully cons- <laughs> it will it will yeah i definitely i mean that's why I like i'm super happy you're putting in the time yeah and i mean you know everybody who listens or and I've told you this and tell everybody this, it's a, it's a blast for me to do. So, you know, I'm in a weird position now to be able to talk to a bunch of hash makers. And yeah, you're living the dream. <laughs> kind of, yeah. I've been up in Humboldt this whole week and, like I said, got to go to your lab and see a few other processors' labs. So you pressed your first rosin ever? I pressed my first rosin. Shout out to uh, Craig. We pressed some of the... I don't know what they're calling that Nigerian, now, Nigerian A's, A's uh, yeah. purple punch cross. But. Yeah, I mean that's another thing that that strain is called Wakanda, and that's a Disney trademark, and like it's crazy. There's so many cease and desist going out from normal industry to the cannabis space because breeders are not being careful or companies are not being careful on how they're marketing. It was not something I guess they had to be concerned with in the past. Yeah, yeah. So, but Gar animals, I heard. Sent out quite a few. Yeah, but I got that cease and desist too for granules. Yeah, no, it is it is very interesting. But I think it's really the breeder's responsibility as far as the names to like, hey, let's do a trademark search before we like put in time into like marketing this. There's just, yeah, so many, it seems like there's new genetics by the second. Yeah. You know, so it, it yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But, you know, we were talking about these auxiliary businesses that support solventless, like the edibles. And I believe it was last night that I asked you, I was like, do you see yourself getting, do you see Nasha getting into that market? I definitely, because I'm a trained chef and I really like to cook, I would definitely like to launch a Nasha edible. I really just don't have the space in my facility to launch an edible right now. And I don't want to do it through a co-packer because I like to be really involved with all the products we make. It's like, even though like our infused pre-rolls, like they actually get rolled at off-site at like a manufacturing place down the street. 
but I'll go in every batch and mix the hash in with them, with the material. I kind of like to have my finger in anything that we're actually putting out because I'm like OCD about all sorts of things. So as the company grows, is that something that's going to be something you'll have to work on? Like letting go more and more? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, one of my friends actually posed this question of like, why do you want to grow? And that always kind of sits profoundly in my brain. Like, am I making enough hash right now? Like, does it always have to be this cycle of like growth? Like, I don't have any shareholders I'm beholden to. I don't have any outside corporate investors that are like, we need 25% return on our money. You need to f- launch 20 new products this year so we can hit like, I don't have that. We own the property that we wash at. So there's no, there's no like monetary pressure to keep endless, kind of endless growth going in my model. I think we produce a lot of hash Everybody on the team gets paid well, and they're all like, from when they first started to now, like their living standards are all going up. So, and all the farmers we work with, we're giving them really good prices, and like they're happy to work with us. So, I don't think I'll make an edible till like it just feels like the right time. Like, I get that creative bug, like, okay, my hash making is kind of just running itself and I'm looking for like a new place to put my OCD into. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. How do you maintain these relationships with these farmers? So, again, like I'm in the community, we go to similar events. I mean, COVID's been a bit different, but before COVID, like there's community events. I, anytime I go to the grocery store, I'm going to see one or two people that I work with. Anytime I go to, to like a restaurant, I'll see one or two people. And that's just because Arcade is small and the community is tight. So for me, it's not like a tough job maintaining relationships. Also, like, you know, we're constantly doing farmer promo um, on IG. So like the farms are constantly like, oh, thanks for the shout out. And we're reposting them, they're reposting us. So we're constantly, even after COVID keeping in touch digitally. One of my favorite parts is farm visits. So I make sure to do farm visits with like a lot of the farmers that I'm working with during the year. What do you find that brings for you outside of the experience itself? Well, one, it's a time for me to really see what are their growing practices. So if I'm going to a farm and I see a bunch of barrels of nutrients and salts, like even if they told me, hey, I don't use any salt, I'm purely organic, you know, obviously not. So it's kind of an inspection time for me. Also, I can kind of like get a preview into like how the plants look. And I get surprised all the time. But at a certain point, I can be like, oh, that looks like it's not really a hash plant. Or like that really looks like a hash plant. And then the other thing is being able to touch all the plants. It took a while to kind of develop this. Not that I developed this, but it developed for me is like touching a plant and rubbing the resin in your fingers and seeing like, is it beach sand resin that's going to come off easy in a wash? Or like, did I touch that plant and I just have exploded resin all over my fingers? 
And that gives me a preview into how difficult it's going to be to wash and maybe how much it's going to yield. And like other kind of things, like even after it's dry, I'm not just crazy with my lighter in terms of finished hash, but like I'm like taking my finger and like wiping totes and shelves with my finger and melting the hash that comes out. I'm like going to the trim tables and like, you know, wiping my finger and melting the hash. So I'm on like melt inspection. (laughs) That's pretty funny. What has been one of the more surprising things you've found when going out to a farm, good or bad? I don't know so much about surprise. I'm not really... There's no surprise. It's like, I know I'm going to a weed farm. Yeah, I guess just like if a practice maybe you weren't expecting to see or something along those lines. You know, I've read quite a bit about sustainable agriculture. And I originally came to Humboldt through the Woofing program, Willing Workers on Organic Farms. So like people doing old like biodynamics and old techniques, those are not really surprising me. I'm surprised how farmers think what they're putting in to the soil is not reflecting out in taste. So I can take it to the other end. You know, when I go into indoor locations and I've been telling them, hey, I can taste your reservoir in the hash. And then I walk into their reservoir room and it smells exactly like what I'm tasting in the hash. That was a little bit of a surprise for me. Yeah, I bet. Like you said, different things come through. Uh, you burnt some for me earlier, and you're like, does this smell a little different? And I'm like, I don't know what it is, but something's kind of off. And you're like, yeah, is this likely a higher sulfur? Yeah, so sulfur, I think, is a huge plague in, because the, in the California rec market because the state doesn't test for sulfur. So it's not like you're going to see it in any test. If you use sulfur, people are using sulfur to manage PM, powdery mildew and to change the pH. But you can use sulfur in two different ways. You can either burn it in your rooms or greenhouses, and then your hash and flour will taste like a matchbox. Or you can use something called micronized sulfur, where like you're actually spraying like micro amounts of sulfur everywhere. And that's real like I see that come through in the hash, especially, you know, not at like Craig's farm. Um, but a lot of these other farms that like are in this factory model where they're trying to do like four pulls a year and, you know, maybe they get like a PM infestation. So they're like, all right, let's spray a bunch of sulfur. And they think like nobody's going to notice. Um, I notice. And do you think when that kind of material is going to, for example, flour, is it less noticeable? No, I can like, because I can, you can melt, you can burn the flour too and smell the same thing. I just don't think people are people are looking out for it and, or knowing it's happening cuz like I can I did it with one of these the packagers that work for me is like he doesn't smoke but I was like here smell this and then yeah it smells off I'm like does it smell like rubber tires or matchbox he's like that's totally what he smells what it smells like and now I can go to him every time and like he can pick up sulfur he doesn't even smoke weed right so, I mean, it's detectable. Somebody just has to make that mental connection. Like, what you're smelling right here, this is why that smell is there. Right, having that kind of reference. The question is, I haven't done it with the control sample, 
you know, let's see if there's something with, without sulfur in it. And we're burning in. People are like, oh, I'm smelling sulfur. <laughs> you know, is there a sulfur placebo? But that's why I have other people checking with me just to make sure I'm not going insane. That's fair. So let's go back to this idea of you wanting to or preferring to wash whole buds versus trim. What's it going to take for you to be able to wash exclusively whole buds or will that ever happen? Definitely an interesting question. Right now in the California market, we have massive price compression for outdoor farms. Prices, I think, you know, in previous years into legalizations were pretty high. So it's hard to tell a flower farmer like, hey, I'm going to give you a few hundred dollars for this when they can make like a few, like a thousand dollars, I'm turning it into flour. But right now there's huge price compression. I mean, I just heard like light depths are going for 500 bucks a pound, like fully trimmed with the tax. Um, And that means like 350 to the farmer. And can you imagine if they spent 150 to trim that? I mean, they're at $200 to grow. Like that's a huge change from 2005, $3,000 a pound. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Because I want to wash whole flour, but I also don't want to see farmers getting like $100, $200 a pound for their stuff. I mean, I think tax reform is really important because like, where is all that extra money going? Um, I mean, it's going to the state. And it's funny, I just saw them launch like a grant program. They want to give $100 million of business grants out. I'm like, how about you just not tax everyone and we'll give ourselves the grant money? <laughs> um, So yeah, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. The other issue is like, okay, there's price compression, so it's going to cause all these small legacy cultivators to maybe want to shut down. And then I won't have like this beautiful regenerative cannabis to source from. So now, like, am I sourcing from mega greenhouses and Salinas? And is the resin quality going to be the same? So even if it's whole flour, it might be like salt-fed greenhouse whole flour. So... I would definitely rather wash like high quality resin from trim that came from a farm that's doing it right than wash whole flour from a farm that's not doing it right. Yeah, that was part of my question. You know, um, just... so I mean, I, re- I re- I'm just observing. I'm really, I'm, I'm here observing. I know there's certain models which I feel will succeed, and that's. Models where you have like a geographical advantage. So if you're able to dry farm and tractor, you know, tractor till, but still remain organic and do it on five or 10 acres, hopefully that's where I'm sourcing from in the future of people that do it right. And, you know, one farm in particular that I'm thinking of, they're not only a cannabis farm, but they're an organic agriculture farm. They produce tomatoes, figs, pears. So when they're looking at it, it's like, okay, for our tomatoes and peaches, you know, we're getting like $12 a pound. You know, we're getting a hundred bucks a pound with cannabis. It's still not a bad deal. There's all sorts of metric and compliance costs and insurance involved that obviously like bring that number, so maybe they should just keep growing tomatoes. It's a pain <laughs> in the ass to do all that, but hopefully like they go through. And then, I mean, there's going to be like another 
I mean, when I start hearing about the numbers in like the Midwest, 400 acres and 200 acres, I'm just like, whoa. So like, it's eventually going to be treated like an agricultural crop. I just don't want to be washing stuff that was treated like an agricultural crop and sprayed with a bunch of pesticides. And Monsanto came up with that genetic. Um, and they lobbied to get their one pesticide approved through this cannabis system that they're going to come up with. So hopefully it doesn't get there. Yeah, the other option is I go back to India and uh, I'm washing stuff from the hills in India. Yeah, no, that's what I And you actually did tell me you washed up there. I think it was like... A- Maybe relative or something oh, that yeah, brought that, some bags down. Oh no, that was yeah, that was ridiculous. Um, I was in the mountains, like washing my own jars, but I'm like, let's do ice water hash. And there's no road to get there, so we brought ice from on a donkey um, to this <laughs> village. And like, they're looking at me like washing bags and pulling bags, and then in the end, I got like you know like these 10, 20 grams, and then they're they're like, you're crazy. We could just walk up, rub these plants, like no donkey, no ice, like. Um, so yeah, I did wash there. Um, there's actually now now I've heard there's pretty big kind of they're not really facilities, but like pretty big outfits in the mountains in India, um, pumping out a lot of ice water hash. Interesting. And I mean, it's they're they're blasting too. Like people are buying butane and running it through pipes. People are doing ethanol up there. I haven't been there in years, so it would be interesting to go back and kind of see. Yeah, where it's at. But one of my dreams would be to have like a hash factory in Parvati Valley in India, be able to export around the world. Yeah, that would be cool. Like you said earlier, we'll see how a lot of those things play out. I think it's kind of an unpredictable story. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in India, it would be cool to even just sell domestically. There's so many hash smokers in India. Even if we weren't exporting, it would be cool to just... Make hash in India for Indians. That would be cool. Well, Baron, I appreciate you hanging out with me. We'll start winding it down now, and I'll just go down the line and ask you some questions all over the place. Oh, are these the standard exit question? What's your favorite strain? Not yet. Okay. We're almost there. (laughs) Um, What do you see in the future for Nasha? I don't know. The future looks blurry. I really don't know. I'm just kind of living in the present with all my consciousness about like climate change and the environment, this has been a really hard year. A lot of farms that I work with have had either burnt down completely or have had fires really close. I mean, is the forest going to burn down every single year? Are water levels going to rise? You know, so I don't know. I'm trying to just uh, do the best I can in the present. Yeah, and I mean, you're putting out a lot of hash right now. You said you need pallets to lift kilos of hash. Yeah, we definitely like palletize hash and move it with pallet jacks to send it out. No, that's cool. Yeah, I'm like I said, I I keep saying this. uh, It'll be interesting to see how things. Yeah, I mean, the market's limited. You know, we have a pretty big market share of the California market of the California hash market, and I don't really seeing it increase too much. I don't think too many people, there's not like a rapid increase of people smoking the kind of hash that I'm making. There's kind of like, I feel like there's like a core group of California smokers. So yeah, right now we're just kind of just doing what we do. Cool. 
In the future, I'm only going to do fresh frozen whole plant 104. (laughs) You mentioned a couple of things to me that were funny and I see kind of interconnected. One, when you were doing the program here, the agricultural program, you said that you noticed you weren't like super great digging around in the soil and this, that, the other. So you ended up in the kitchen and you were cooking meals for people, which later translated into your chef career. You went to school for culinary arts, but then you still told me that your specialty necessarily isn't like fine details. It's more kind of a bigger picture. And so do you feel like that influences your hash philosophy, hash making? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, my personality is like, like when I go out to eat, I order a lot of food. When I cook for people, I cook a lot of food. When I was in a fine dining Michelin star kitchen, I like, like they would make fun of me because my hands are so big and fat. They're like, it looks really funny when you're doing all these small tweezer work on these on this plate, but like I was really good at the grill station, like throwing slabs of meat down and like moving huge, you know, or butchering stuff. So my personality is less kind of, I'm still OCD about like, I'll still observe a lot of things, but like my personality is like a little bit big and less perfectionist in detail. So yeah, it reflects in my hash as well. That's why we make so much hash. That's why like, it's not going to be, there's going to be a systole hair in there, you know. Right. It's not going to be like 99%. Like, I could never imagine, and I really respect people that do, like, that do dry sift, you know, resin ranch. Like, to be able to sit and do, like, static tech on something or to separate that many times in the cold, that's awesome. But I could never see myself doing that. What do you see your brand or brand recognition at this point, bringing to a small farmer who is trying to survive Prop 64? Well, yeah, I mean, I've seen it because of all our farm promo. I mean, everybody we work with in terms of small farms then subsequently get hit up by a bunch of other companies because, like, you know, I'm I'm like going and finding Melt and working with them. So, like... And promoting that, then they have other companies approach them, which helps them too, because like I'm only taking their trim or like maybe a little bit of whole flour, but they need to sell the rest. So it's like a great ecosystem, you know, when I can promote a farm and other companies get interested and maybe, you know, they take some fresh frozen and, you know, another company like they another company saw me promoting them as a regenerative farm. So maybe a distributor will reach out to them who like specializes in like legacy regenerative farm flour and you know they'll be able to sell their flour. So it's really a platform um to tell that story of that farm. So yeah, it's it's I think it's been really advantageous. And then the other coolest thing is when consumer like recognize consumers recognize the logo that they like on the packaging and they hit us up on IG and they're like, when is that queen stuff? When is that sunbolt coming back out? You know, and that's super powerful in the future because I would love to see like CSA community supported agriculture and have like these clubs where people could order, you know, from their farm, 
I think it would be awesome, you know, once people know that they like this group of like three farms where they could support the farm by prepaying. You know, they know they spend $5,000 on weed a year. It would be cool if we could like somehow, you know, have them prepay for that harvest and have their like yearly smoke, you know, completely laid out. Right. It's almost like a curation. Exactly. So I think we'll get there, but in the legal market, I can't just FedEx something or UPS something. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to a lobbyist. I'm like, we need to do that. But they're not going to allow it because the alcohol distributors made the regulation for Prop 64. So they specifically placed themselves as the middleman in the market so they can control the market. Yeah. You talked to me a little bit about this last night, which I didn't know anything about. It's like who actually built the rules and regulations for the recreational. Yeah, it was the Teamsters and the labor union and Big Alcohol built our cannabis regulation. Yeah, which is weird. And <laughs> I mean, the people like Lori Ajax, who was like running the BCC for a long time, she was a state employee from the alcohol department. So it's like they're they're trying to treat it like alcohol. Yeah. Do you see things getting any easier if you want to play in the recreational market here? No, I think it's getting harder and harder and harder. Like, I don't think I could have done what I have today. If I started Nasha today, it would take me a lot harder to get to this point if I could even reach it than if I started in 2016. Because just the shops have limited bandwidth. You know, they're being approached with new brands every day. Corporate cannabis is throwing money at them all the time. You know, buyers are working remotely half the time. Like back in the day, like buyers, when I would sell hash, would melt test with me, smell, take a sample home, maybe place an order the next day. Now, like buyers are working remotely. There's just spreadsheets moving around and, you know, people's brand reps. So like to cut through all that noise as a new brand is extremely hard. I can imagine. To get to the retail market at this point. Yeah, but do you feel like having been in that Prop 215 era also helped contribute to like already being in the market in a sense? Yeah, yeah. Like because I had brand recognition from the beginning. Like I was working with those dispensaries before 64. So that definitely helped out. We were building our customer base for like five years. I mean, back in the day, people would come and ask me for like kilos of melt. And I'm like, even though I could semi-legally sell them those kilos of melt with the medical system, I wouldn't. Because I'm like, no, these are for my customers. Because I knew like I want to be that consistent supplier of hash for them. So I always made sure like to keep the melt in the Nasha brand. What are some of your favorite smokes this year so far? So I've been really, I'm really digging Wakanda, a.k.a. Wack, a.k.a. Nigerian Haze. It's, I really like it. Interesting flavor, more of like an uplifting high. I'm less, less sedating. I really like, in terms of, I've been smoking on CBD hash, um, which is not being released. But I really like Swamp Boy Seeds, what I've been seeing 
from Swamp Boy Seeds is super cool. Um, Purple, Purple City Genetics, um, THC Bomb, is awesome. My all-time favorites are from Sunshine, from Sunbolt, and she just has her own strains. So, yeah, that's what I'm kind of really hyped about. Cool. I don't know how many other brands of hash you smoke, but are there some brands of hash that you admire? Yeah, I would love to give a shout-out to Belle. We just smoked some white thorn rose that she made, and it was literally one of the best hashes I've ever smoked. So Bell's definitely doing it right at the hashery, Mendocino Heritage Company. Yeah, Mendocino Heritage. Um, Heritage Mendocino. Heritage Mendocino. And I think that's a really cool concept for people to come into a retail store and watch the hash be getting made. Yeah, me too. Um, but I think Temple Balls are really like, a small amount of what they do there. I think they're putting out like a lot more rosin. Right. Um, and it's looking super fire. I've never actually tried it because I don't really dab. But yeah, that shows you kind of the limited options I have. If I want to smoke like a Temple Bowl or some pressed old school, there's not very many. Um, How many other companies are in this sector? Well, I just saw Talking Trees. They just like launched a Temple Bowl randomly. So there's Talking Trees. Pressed hash, not really. Like there's, I think there's Axiom hash, and they're doing some press stuff. It seems like a lot of the people that are doing press stuff are now moving into hash wraps. I'm seeing a lot of like hash wraps come on the market where it's like hash and a flower. Yeah, I mean, Frenchie, like obviously immense respect for Frenchie and the hash that he's made and the contribution he's made to the community in terms of education. He was definitely a mentor of mine. Yeah, we haven't, I mean, I know you brought him up. We haven't talked a lot about him, but I know you guys used to hang out a decent amount and you met him actually, I believe, before you came up and like really started doing Nasha. Yeah, I met him at a NCIA event. NCIA event in Oakland in 2015 and he kind of gave me like a hash education on the sidewalk in Oakland as we smoked <laughs> spliffs and I was there with a pen and paper and writing stuff down and what I found unique about Frenchie was like even though like market wise we could be seen as competitors and people are have told me like oh I know you don't agree with Frenchie and I'm like I don't know what you're talking about like he's he's my homie and my mentor like more than anything, like I could call him and ask him questions and have, like, he would take the time to have a one hour conversation with me about all things hash randomly. Um, that was like a super, I wouldn't say like I, I probably talked with him more on the phone than hung out with him. Yeah, I've seen you guys like in some videos together and some things. Yeah, yeah, I probably spent, and I mean, I think towards, I didn't know like this was going to be the end, but. Um, about a year ago, I even like he came up to Humboldt and he had kind of been looking for a place to wash hash. And I'm like, Frenchie would be an honor if like you came to my facility and you know you could run as much hash. And he was like, How much money do you want? I'm like, I don't want any money. It'd just be an honor to like have you like wash in the same space. But you know, Frenchie was funny too. Sometimes I would meet him, like he would come to my infused dinners, like back in the 215 days, we would do like Michelin starred nine course infused dinners. And he would always make it for those. And like sometimes he would be smoking like 160, just not not like whole plant fresh frozen, like, wow, this 
yielded one like it was like plant material 160 and that's what he would be smoking but sometimes so you know he was old school like that and i was like frenchy why are you smoking this he's like well i had to sell the melt <laughs> to the customers and i gotta smoke something that's so funny. i mean that that's for me that's cool because he was part of also like the old school kind of like goa scene and going to india like there's a whole culture which is not so present in America, it's like really small in America, but it's like huge in Europe. If you go to like these Goa Psytrance festivals, they're like, there's a hundred thousand people there. If you go to like a Psytrance festival in the US, like there might be a hundred people there. <laughs> um, so it's a small scene. So Frenchie was always kind of like that. We had that in common and that kind of connection. Yeah, that's cool. He was a cool guy. And, uh, you know, I think. The community definitely will miss him, but he won't be forgotten. No, definitely not. A company that you admire that works in the cannabis sector, maybe even extraction, but a different model than yours. Did I say Heritage Mendocino? Yes. (laughs) But since they do the temple balls, not partially. Like cultivators or? Could be cultivators. Cultivators like Craig from Alpenglow. East Mill Creek Farms is amazing. Sunshine, um, Crystal, who has High Water Farm, Jane and Dan, who do dry farming. Like most, I have a lot of respect for farmers. As far as brands, like I don't really go to dispensaries and buy weed or hash. So I'm not really exposed to too many people like that. One person. That I really admire too is like Tom Solventless Mind. I think um, he's an amazing hash maker. He's in tune with the resin quite a bit. And yeah, he has his own ideas and he like stands up for his ideas. And uh, I have a lot of respect for him. Cool. Yeah. I, and you're rocking that Sasquatch of his. Yeah. In yeah the lab. He, sold, he sold me his old Sasquatch. I don't know if it's like. The temperatures are still right or calibrated <laughs> um, on it. The platen's kind of misaligned. But he actually like he actually did a whole like press tutorial for me before where I sat with him and like he showed me how he pressed. He yeah, really open with his knowledge. I think like a lot of companies now took some of his ideas into the rec market of like what he was doing and they're pretty successful with that. So um, but when I'm, I, I don't actually talk to him that much anymore. But I see in IG, he's in Florida, living the life, swimming with alligators. So. <laughs> no, good for him, man. Yeah, no, that's cool. Last question, Baron. If you could hear from someone on the podcast who hasn't been on in the hash world, who would it be? Frenchie. No. <laughs> um, who hasn't been on the podcast? I mean, you haven't interviewed Tom yet, right? I haven't spoken to Tom yet. Yeah, I would love to see Tom on the podcast. Cool. Yeah, he's one of the the higher requested ones. And yeah, I've put in my request a few times. We'll see what happens. But yeah, I think that would be cool. He's a great personality. I wish I had better lists for this for you. I'm horrible. Hey, most people give me multiple, so I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, hor- I'm horrible at, at this segment of the questions. No, no. I, I Like I said, it's funny to me you... Just from talking to you, getting to know you, you're like doing your own thing and you're not really connected to 
like the scene or anything like that. You even I asked you at one point, like when you came back and we were doing culinary school, like, oh, how was hash changing? You're like, I don't know. I was just buying hash from the same farm that I was making hash from while I was smoking or while I was doing the, you know, cooking thing. So, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty. I've always been an outlier, kind of like the other. It might have something to to do with like my mixed ethnicity, um, because I've never like fit in to like being completely white, or I've never fit into being completely Indian. Um, so you know, it might have something to do with that. How I'm like, I've embraced my other alias, <laughs> right. and I just kind of like sit and do my own thing. No, I think it's cool, man. And uh, again, I really appreciate you hanging out with me and it's been nice to get to know you and I appreciate dinner the other night and shout out to Olia again and for anyone who kept up with us this long and listened, I appreciate it and we'll catch you next time. Cool, thank you. Thank you, Baron. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.